Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. Each week, we interview the best and brightest in physical therapy, wellness, and entrepreneurship. We give you cutting-edge information you need to live your best life, healthy, wealthy, and smart. The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Karen Litzy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Karen Litzy, and today is a special episode of the podcast. This is a replay of a webinar from the private practice section. They just had it yesterday for private practice section members, but PPS wanted to make sure that anyone who needed this information can get this information. So we decided to put it out on the podcast for wider distribution. So I want to thank the private practice section. I want to thank the amazing therapists that were on this call, Dr. Lynn Steffes, Dr. Mark Milligan, who was just on the podcast a couple days ago. We love Mark. And physical therapist, Ali Shoes. They are all private practice section members. And in this podcast, they are talking about the rules, the regulations around telehealth. They are talking about the APTA's position on telehealth how to get paid, the billing that we know right now with telehealth, which, by the way, might have changed since the last time I spoke with Mark, which was less than a week ago. And then Mark is going to also talk about all the ins and outs of telehealth, what you need, how to do it, why you should do it, everything you need to know about telehealth will be in this podcast that we know right now, like we said and like they say. Things are changing very, very quickly. Now, the other thing I want to make everyone very well aware of is the PPS's website, which is ppsapta.org. When you go onto the website, they have critical resources for managing your business during the COVID-19 pandemic. This is free and open to everyone, member or not. So head on over to ppsapta.org. Click on the critical resources for managing your business during the COVID-19 pandemic, and there are tons of resources there. I'm just going to go through and uh, name a few. Frequently asked questions and resources for telehealth and assistance for small businesses. Uh, the, The telehealth webinar recording is there, this recording how to promote telehealth services for your patients. These are downloadable scripts that you can use. Cash flow modeling to help you plan things out in this very, very uncertain times. Uh, Links to the Small Business Administration. Society for Human Resources Management. uh, U.S. Department of Labor and Occupational Safety and Health Administration guidelines, APTA guidelines, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, COVID-19 emergency declarations and guidelines. So all I'm saying is whether you're a member of the private practice section or not, they have tons of resources for you to use. So please, please, if you're, if you've got questions, you're wondering, is my business going to make it? What can I do? Head on over to ppsapta.org. You can get tons of information, member or not. So a huge thanks to PPS for recording this webinar and for allowing me to put it on the podcast for wider distribution. So thank you so much. And everyone, if you have any questions, hit up PPS on Twitter, on social media, or through their website. 
Thanks, everyone, and uh, stay safe, stay healthy. Hello, everyone. Welcome, and thank you for joining us for this special webinar, Telehealth Now. I'm Carrie Stankowitz, Education and Program Manager for the Private Practice Section. Before we get started, I'd like to review a few procedural items. To submit your questions, please enter them into the Q&A box, which you can access from the Zoom menu. We'll collect your questions there, and the speakers will respond to them as we go through the presentation. We expect to have a large number of questions, so we need to manage them carefully. In a moment, Ali Schuess will give you some parameters around entering your questions. If you have a technical question, you can type that into the Q&A box, and I will respond to you in text. Please note that with the extremely high volume of companies and individuals that are now using online platforms for conferencing, there is a strain placed upon the technology and the infrastructure. Our vendor has done their best to provide a high-quality experience, but neither we nor they can control internet slowdowns resulting from unusually high volume. In the chat box, we've posted a number of resources for you to refer to. Please feel free to copy these links and save them for future reference. This webinar is being recorded and will be posted on the PPS website for everyone to view. And with that, I'll turn this over to PPS board member Ali Schuess to get us started. Thanks, Carrie. Hi, everybody. As Carrie said, I'm Allie. I am a private practice physical therapist from Bellevue, Washington. And thank you for that musical introduction. I am the co-founder of Peak Sports and Spine Physical Therapy in the Pacific Northwest. Um, and I do have the honor to serve you on the board of PPS. I'm also on the advisory task force around all things COVID. And this webinar is a result of that task force. Our goal is to bring you uh, business owners relevant information right now to help you manage your practice through this crisis and come out whole on the other end. So to that end, um, a couple things about our uh, question process. There are 500 of you on this webinar, so we do expect to have probably more questions than we can answer. So we would ask that when you post a question, look and see if anyone else has posted a similar question so that we don't get bombarded with the same thing. Um, don't ask state-specific questions. That's uh, relevant to the laws in your state and mandates in your state, so we're not going to be able to answer state-specific questions, although we will keep a copy of all the questions that come in and try to deal with them later. Um, we will stop intermittently to answer as many questions as we can and i'm going to apologize in advance that i don't think we're going to be able to answer every single thing that you ask but we'll do our best with that i would like to introduce our main presenters uh, dr lynn steffes is an 1981 graduate of northwestern university and earned her transitional dpt in 2010 from evidence in motions executive management program Lynn is, a, is the president, coach, and consultant for Estefas & Associates. It's a rehabilitation consulting service based in Wisconsin. Lynn provides consulting services um, to rehab providers among a, a wide range of services, including marketing and program development, uh, selection and training and support of practice management specialists, uh, lifestyle medicine programs, negotiating contracts, and Lynn's also been a frequent provider of content the educational webinars that PPS puts out. Our second presenter is Dr. Mark Milligan, who earned his DPT from the University of Colorado. Mark is a full-time clinician and owner of Revolution Human Physical Therapy and Education. 
a concierge PT practice and microeducation company. That was a new term for me. Mark is an adjunct faculty for three DPT PT programs. He has presented at numerous state and national conferences on telehealth, pain science, and dry needling. He's also been um, uh, published by peer review uh, journals. Mark is the founder and CEO of Anywhere Healthcare, a telephone platform for all health care disciplines. And he is an active member of the DPTA, APTA, and AAOMPT. And with that, I would like to let uh, Lynn take it away. Okay, so welcome to this webinar. And before I get started, the first thing I wanted to say to all of you is, um, I really, we're, we're here honoring you for the good work that you're trying to do in serving consumers uh, in your marketplaces. So we know that all of you are incredibly dedicated, compassionate, amazing clinicians and business owners that are looking at this COVID crisis uh, today and then also looking forward and saying, how can we best serve our patients? And, and many of you may be continuing to serve some people in your clinics or, or you may not be, but we certainly wanted to talk about this really important option. Um, and give you a little bit of background on some details with it. So with that, I'll jump into more of the content information. So the objectives that I'm gonna primarily deal with are just looking at the APTA's position, talking a little bit about the statutes and rules that will govern your ability to deliver and access these services, and also some information about payment policy, whether it's federal, state, commercial, uh, work comp, and uh, then I'm going to turn it over to the real expert, who is Mark Milligan. And so I kind of get stuck with the fun stuff, the payment and policy things. So next slide. Okay, so APTA has long had a position that telehealth is an appropriate model of service delivery. And as long as it's delivered with the same uh, essence, really, that we deliver care. And so this isn't new to APTA to be looking at telehealth as a way of delivering care. Next. At a state level, different states have different rules, uh, or excuse me, statutes and rules that govern your ability to deliver telehealth care. So rather than us focusing on any one state today, what I'm recommending to you is that you reach out to your state level associations uh, also, APTA has a site that looks at state statutes and rules and determine what your current level of coverage is regarding telehealth. So there are two different uh, aspects of telehealth that you would need to look at that are legal um, at a state level, which is obviously governs what you can do within your scope of practice. And the one is your statutes and rules that govern your scope. And the second one really is, are there specific telehealth laws in your state that would in any way limit you from delivering those services? Keep in mind that if you've looked before or downloaded those policies before, they may have been updated or there may be some emergency provisions in place. So I encourage you to begin there. Um, so that, that's an important first step. Certainly anytime you deliver outside your scope of services, your malpractice insurance is no longer required to cover you. So it's important to do. Next. So one of the things that we want you to think about is as you're considering telehealth, 
um, we want you to first check your state practice act to verify just as I had mentioned and then also find out if um, there are emergency provisions. Um, it's possible that your state practice act is silent on telehealth and as long as there isn't a prohibition then I would turn to your chapter for guidance and their examining boards may look further. Um, you certainly are going to document legal and ethical reasons you're converting patients to telehealth visits. So if you've never done telehealth before or e-visits and you're going to start doing so, I think it would be important for your, your practice setting to document that transition and the decisions that were involved. You're going to also have to make sure that you are securing consent for each of your patients along with the right to refuse. I think mean, most of you know that your individual states have consent laws that govern what type of consent you have to get. And it'll be important for you to get consent uh, for telehealth or e-visits and the format from your patients. Most of the time, it will be fine to secure that consent verbally and to document when uh, you received it carefully in the medical record. You, it's also a good idea to look at what types of emergency policy procedures you might need to put in place. For example, if you were to be teaching a patient exercises and they're working on them in their home through a telehealth visit and they fall, fell, what would you do to address the emergency? Are there other folks, are there family members, caregivers there? Um, and then how that might be handled. And that's something you may even wanna look at with your legal team. Uh, keep in mind also if you're going to start using telehealth that a secured portal is ideal and if you have a secured portal or something that um, is designed to share information uh, over the internet or phone, you're going to need a business associate agreement in place that ensures HIPAA compliance. Uh, I think Mark's going to deal a little bit later with some of the other HIPAA things that give us a little bit of wiggle room right now. And then finally, make sure and review your malpractice insurance policy to make sure you're covered. I know HPSO provided guidance that we have a link on, and I also know PT1, BGM provided guidance on that, saying you're covered. So next. Real quickly, I want to just start off by saying there are different types of visits. I think when this was first announced that, hey, Medicare is going to cover PT as a telehealth uh, service, Everyone got very excited and what they didn't realize is that Medicare actually is not covering telehealth. Instead, they're covering e-visits and we're gonna talk about the distinction between the e-visits and the telehealth. We also have third-party payers, commercial payers that are covering assessment and management visits um, and not telehealth and then the actual telehealth visits. So we're gonna kind of explore those three areas but we want you to really listen for which area might fit your practice in your uh, regulatory environment. So true telehealth, let's start with the good news. If we could do true telehealth, uh, and we, we can often, we're gonna bill our 9700 codes, the 97110 for Therx, 112 for neuromuscular re et cetera. We're gonna continue to apply the GPPT modifier, but we're gonna also use the O2 place of service code, which is gonna communicate that we're doing telehealth. Now, some payers may actually be looking for either a different modifier or an additional modifier. So we're gonna talk a little bit later about how you get that uh, information from your payers, but it certainly is important. 
next. Um, I wanted to start off by saying that a lot of codes are out there, um, which are often used in tele telemedicine, which is physician covered telehealth, uh, 99, 421, 22, and 23. These are actually evaluation and management or ENM codes. And those codes are really reserved for physicians or other qualified uh, non-physician providers, such as PAs or NPs. In general, these codes exclude therapists' ability to bill. However, we have been hearing occasionally that there are third-party payers that want us to use that code. So I'm just going to say, if someone suggests that you use those codes to bill those services, make sure that they provide a URL or a link for you so that you can see the policy that ensures that you will be covered for those codes because those are traditionally not therapy codes. Next. Uh, payment from Medicare. So we were super excited. We heard telehealth is covered. And really that was um, a misconception at the beginning. Medicare doesn't co consider physical therapists as an approved telehealth provider. The list is in the bullet below. Um, but Medicare Advantage plans um, can actually make their own decisions and may choose to cover telehealth itself. A lot of times uh, policies are carrier specific. I, this slide is really pretty important and it's just to give you the sense that, uh, take a look at the date of this press release. CMS finalizes policies to bring innovative telehealth benefit to Medicare Advantage. That was April of two, 20, or 2019, which seems like 100 years ago right now, a very different time. And so Medicare Advantage plans um, definitely had plans to expand telehealth services, but those plans also did not include PTOT and speech. So this is not a new idea or a new uh, fight that we're, we're trying to leverage. Um, however, we may be in a unique position and I'm kind of a silver lining person and I'm hoping that this opportunity might actually gives, give us a window to get in. Next. Um, your Medicaid programs, as you know, Medicare is more federal and Medicaid is state driven. So some Medicaid programs have uh, telehealth policies. The telehealth reimbursement policies vary state to state. Those are very fluid. Um, our, we just have had uh, multiple updates being published in the last three days in Wisconsin. So I know for a fact that you're going to have to kind of stay on top of that to determine if you're trying to serve the Medicaid beneficiaries in your state, um, how that policy might change in response to the COVID crisis. So keep, take, keep looking and you're going to have to, this is a moving target, so keep in, keep in touch, keep going. So what type of virtual visit? Again, we talked about there's an e-visit, there's assessment and management or telehealth. Next. Let's look at what the actual definition for an e-visit is. In the 2020 Physician Fee Schedule Final Rule, CMS described e-visits as non-face-to-face patient-initiated. So I want you to really pay attention. This has to be initiated. So the contact has to be initiated by the patient digital communications that require a clinical decision. So again, clinical decision, that's really important. So you are going to have to document that clinical decision-making was made during the contact of a visit that might otherwise typically been provided in your office. 
So this is the definition of an e-visit. And the code descriptors that Medicare is using are HixPix codes uh, related to the e-visits. And they're really designed as a short-term, kind of like a, I always think of it like a bridge loan when you're uh, building. They're to, designed to cover short-term, up to seven days of assessments and management activities that are conducted online or through a digital platform. And then again, include clinical decision-making. So what's an online patient portal? Um, HHS has described a patient portal as a secure online website that gives patients convenient 24-hour access to personal health information. Patient portal requires a secure username and a password. In the absence of broadband uh, access, online accounts or smartphones or other means, um, CMS has indicated they want the service to be furnished. So they're giving us some more flexibility. Mark's gonna talk more about the technology a little later, but I just wanted you to know that eVisit um, has you know, a variety of opportunities, including something like doing FaceTime with your patients. Go ahead. Um, the billing and coding is what I think you're all waiting for. So physical therapists are eligible to use the HixPix codes, and these codes require a CR modifier, and the CR modifier really indicates that they're related to the COVID crisis. Um, so we have G206162 and 63. Again, the definitions uh, qualify non-physician healthcare professional online assessment management. It has to be for an established patient. And lots of questions come up. What is an established patient? It is a patient who you're currently seeing under a plan of care. And so what would happen is if you were seeing the patient, you'd have the next seven days to provide some type of e-interaction with that patient that provided clinical decision-making and input with them that, was, that would be much like what you would do in the office. And so the different code levels are really time-related. So imagine that you saw someone, today is Wednesday, so imagine that you saw them in person on Monday. Um, there would be a seven-day consecutive day window at which time you could have one contact with them or you could have a couple contacts. Each time you had a contact, you would have to document the contact information. But really, when you actually go to bill the code, it would be a summary of the seven days. And the documentation at that point in time would summarize what type of clinical decision-making assessment and management occurred over those, those contacts. As you can see, uh, nobody's retiring with this funding. Uh, we've got the, the five to 10 minutes at 1227, 11 to 20, 2165, and 21 or more minutes at 3392. So pretty limited. Um, the place of service is the location of the billing practitioner, which Medicare is, is suggesting that we would do place of service 11. And you can deliver these services via the phone. Assessment and management are comparable codes, um, non-HICSPIX, but they're CPT. So 98966, 67, and 68. And those are actually used for telephone assessment and management services, again, by a non-qualified physician healthcare professional to, once again, an established client. But this one further expands and says a parent or guardian. So these are, again, established patients, and they have to be initiated by the patient. That doesn't mean that you can't contact the patient. 
and offer them this service. It doesn't mean that you can't help them set up, et cetera. It just means that the call itself that you're doing, the uh, assessment and management code has to be initiated by the patient. The assessment and management codes have a little bit uh, more parameters put around them. And one is that the call can't, or, or it can't originate from the provider, and it can't be within the previous seven days. So it, the case I gave earlier for the e-visits, it would have to be seven days prior. Um, and then it would be the assessment and management calls. And then you couldn't see them again within the next 24 hours. So there are these windows of time, seven days prior, um, you couldn't have had a physical one-on-one -on -one visit with them and 24 hours after. Um, so as of right now, if you're gonna be doing these assessment and management codes, um, they would have those limitations. These are codes, by the way, that I'm starting to see emerging from some of the commercial payers as covered um, in lieu of the, the HICSPICS codes. Um, these again are telephone discussion times. They're five to 10 minutes, 11 to 20, and 21 to 30. And of course, because these are other payer codes, you'd have to look to the payer for coverage um, of the codes and payment. So true telehealth, we're back to that. Um, there really isn't a specific CPT code for true telehealth. You would be using the, the therapy codes, the 9700 series, paired with the O2 um, place of service code, which would indicate that it was provided remotely. Um, because if you're gonna be providing these CPT codes face, these what are called face-to-face -face codes, which I would argue if you're doing telemedicine or telehealth, excuse me, they're face-to-face, -face, you're gonna to have to verify that the payer allows you to use these codes um, when they're telehealth. So you can't just bill these codes uh, leading the pair to believe that they were provided in office. Next. Um, I wanted to say payer policy is fluid and that is followed by multiple exclamation points. This is changing so fast. Um, I literally just got off the phone before I stepped on this call saying we've got legislation coming in our state that's gonna do some mandates. Um, so you may have to check regularly. For example, in the state of Wisconsin, our governor just uh, issued a stay-at-home order. So payers are gonna have to reevaluate their policies if they want to continue uh, to have their enrollees get services. So when you are, whether you hear from one another provider or whoever that someone covers telehealth or someone covers assessment and management or e-visits, I would suggest that each time you call, you verify benefits. And you're gonna ask several questions. Are you or the physical therapist eligible for telehealth payment? If so, which CPT codes would be completed via telehealth? So which CPT codes will they approve? And then what modifiers are required? So the modifier uh, GT or 95 is often used in facility billing and the place of service O2 in uh, independent practice billing. And then you're gonna to wanna to also find out what their payment rate is. So if they allow you to bill 97110, will there be parity in what they pay you or equivalency in what they pay you based on telehealth versus in office? Are there any restrictions on the location of the PT or the patient? Because of course, right now, if your PTs are practicing from home, that would have to be okay. 
or your patient may actually live in a CBRF or some other facility. Then what devices or applications, do they have any restrictions on that? And what if any consents are required? And then any special documentation requirements. So um, those are some of the good questions to ask. The other thing I will say is regardless of what they tell you, if you can get a link to their payer policy or anything in writing from them, I, I would highly recommend that you do that. And then don't assume that what is not covered today will not be covered tomorrow. And what someone tells you is covered may not be covered. I've already had providers that said they called and asked about telehealth. They said it was covered. And when they called back on a second patient, they said, well, that's not what we meant. So be careful. Next. And finally, um, both Mark and I have um, been using this a lot. The Center for Connected Health Policy has a ton of great resources, but one of the best that I think you're gonna to wanna to download that will give you far more details than I'm able to give you in this brief discussion is their billing fact sheet. So the link uh, to the billing fact sheet is here, and I wish you the best. I think we can provide amazing services in person and also uh, via these wonderful technologies. So thank you. Thanks, Lynn. Um, so a number of questions did come in, and I answered a few of them. So if those of you who received the answer, if that wasn't um, enough clarity, ask it again. But Lynn, I'm just going to let you know what some of the questions are. Sure. And Mark, whoever we can, whoever can answer them. One, yes, you'll have access to the presentation after it's over. This is being recorded, and it will be posted on the website, EPS website. The next question, will we have access, excuse me, why need an option to refuse consent? Wouldn't the person just decline to sign consent? It said in the consent form that we have to um, give them the option to refuse consent. Well, part of, part of the option to refuse, and that's a really good question, is if someone gives consent once, they still have an opportunity to withdraw consent or refuse it in the future. So someone tells you, you know, I'm happy to do telehealth or I'm happy to do e-visits, and they give you consent, and the next time that you're in contact with them, they call and they say, I don't want this anymore. Um, they always have that opportunity to refuse. So that's typically what that's for. Um, I will say that each state practice act and sometimes an overriding practice act over healthcare professionals tell you what's required for consent. And then another person asked about the secure patient portal being ideal, but didn't uh, CMS make uh, the HIPAA compliance issue more lax? And uh, the brief answer is yes, but. I'll let Mark take that one. I think he's got that later in the presentation. Yeah, so Mark, you're going to cover that, right? Yes, we'll talk about it. Great. Um, this is a good one. Can you bill the e-visit code every seven days or just once and done? As far, we don't, I don't know. Um, we've been asking that question if it can be billed repeatedly. We've heard yes and we've heard no. So I'm not sure. I don't know, Allie or Mark, if you know anything more. It's the same thing, and I apologize. We cannot get a straight answer on that. Yeah. I think some people are saying they're just going to do it more than once and see what happens. Again, it's not a big charge. You're not going to get rich or go broke. So if you want to try it, the worst that will happen is it will get denied. Right, so. and we haven't had two seven-day periods to try it yet right. since they've been released. So it hasn't even been an opportunity. Right, right. Um, 
And then does the e-visit have to occur within seven days of the last in-person visit, or could it be 10 days or 14 days after the last in-person visit? I don't think there's a restriction that says it has to be within seven days. I just think it can't be sooner than seven right. days. Yeah, oh. I understand. Okay. Um, and then someone wanted an example, Lennison wanted an example um, regarding the verbiage to justify the clinical decision-making to use an e-visit. For an individual patient or the practice? So when you're documenting, you know, why oh, okay. your clinical decision-making, yeah. Okay, so you could document that either the facility or the patient or the clinician um, made a decision that it was safer to do an e-visit versus the in-person visit and that there was a good a good reason to do that and your clinical decision making would reflect that you advised the patient or gave the patient specific instruction the patient asked you questions you updated an exercise program you perhaps revisited uh, how they're doing on something and um, gave them feedback so again, it's kind of like you're documenting a regular visit, but the clinical, so I would decide that you did the visit, um, you know, virtually for a fairly simple, straightforward reason that that was what was appropriate at the time due to the crisis or for the patient. Now, Mark, you may address this later when you're talking about telehealth on an ongoing basis, because there's lots of good reasons to do it. But right now, I think we're talking COVID. Right. And so, Mark, do you want to address now or later what you might be documenting when COVID is over? Right. So this is a new space to navigate. Um, and so when this crisis is over, I think that this will be a normal part of a plan of care, right? So it will be an expected plan of care that you will put forth in a patient that you, they will have a combination of both digital and in-person visits. If you line it out from the beginning and set it up that way, um, then there's no deviation or der uh, deviation from your initial plan of care. That's how I would handle it. And then one person did ask if you have, to, if the patient, if you do a second seven day visit, yes, the patient would have to initiate that phone call the second time as well, or that yes. contact the second time as well. Yep. Um, can you see a Medicare patient for telehealth for cash as only e-visits are covered? And I did answer earlier, yes, you can see a Medicare patient for cash since telehealth is not actually covered. Absolutely. Um, any patient where it's not a covered service, unless you have, for example, say you had a contract with a certain commercial payer that had a prohibition to doing any services, which rarely do they for a non-covered service, um, you would inform the patient that this is not a covered service and you could go ahead and bill cash for it. Um, for your Medicare patients, an AVN is not required, it's optional, but some folks will use the optional AVN kind of as a backup to ensure that they feel that their Medicare patients were well informed that this was not a covered service. And here's a great question, wanting to know if your PTA can provide the telehealth service um, if the supervising PT is not online with them because it's virtual. Currently for Medicare, the answer I believe is no, but I don't know with other payers. And that would be a question if you were anticipating a PTA providing the services. 
um, telehealth services um, that you would ask. I would think that the e-visits, because they involve clinical decision-making and the assessment and management um, would likely not be covered, but I can't, I think telehealth would be flexible. What do you think, Mark? So Texas just, I think we also have to default to the uh, rules and regs of the state okay. level as well. Okay. Um, Texas just eliminated uh, the verbiage that, that took PTAs away from delivering um, telehealth. <clears throat> so state regs may have a prohibition written that physical therapist assistants can't provide that care. Um, I need, I'll pull up the Texas specific language that I believe there's a caveat that said that it cannot be used for supervision but no one has defined whether or not a PTA can perform it being unsupervised. Does that make sense? I mean, it, PTAs are not physically being supervised in all scopes of practice, right? Like in home health settings, PTAs are not digitally covered or supervised by, or physically supervised by a PT immediately. It's by phone contact, right? So but again, state law. State law, right. Mm -hmm. And obviously in a private practice for Medicare, there has to be on-site supervision, so. Right, so state law, and then I'll, yes, I can check for the Texas regs too, but it's a state regulated issue. Good question. Yeah, very good question. And they're, um, they are pouring in now, guys. So lots and lots of questions here. I'm trying to go through we, them. Should bit. we keep going and let Mark yes. deliver yes. and then we'll go back and ask more, answer some more. And some of these may get answered with Mark's presentation. So we'll come back to these. Yeah. All right. So Lynn that's, and Allie, thank you um, for uh, allowing me to be here and being with you guys in this presentation. Um, Lynn, I, I know that uh, you said earlier that that's not the exciting stuff, but that's what everybody wants to hear. So regardless if it's exciting, it's definitely information that is necessary uh, for all of us to uh, continue to keep our doors open and see patients, right? So um, again, I'm Mark Milligan. I'm out of Austin, Texas, and we're going to cover, basically we're going to cover just what telehealth is. We're going to get some baseline terminology, technology, who players in the game, evidence, and then kind of how to implement it in a practice. Then Ali's going to actually talk to us how to implement it into practice, right? Allie is going, has, um, has implemented this into her clinic. She's delivered care. She's also, uh, as, as a clinic owner, has implemented as a clinic owner. So she's going to give us the nitty gritty on how this actually looks for a private practice owner. So we're going to start with basic terminology um, because, again, terms, words have meaning and terminology can be uh, misleading, and there's been a lot of misleading terminology that's been spread around the physical therapy world since telehealth and e-visits have all been introduced. So telehealth really is just a very large, broad term that describes any type of health education or delivery of care using telecommunications technologies. Um, and as you'll see that it applies to almost every profession other than medicine. Telemedicine is specifically owned uh, and basically uh, utilized only and exclusively with physician-delivered care and their extended providers, right? So um, I think one of the bigger issues that came across our country earlier uh, or late last week was when, tele when I think um, the president said that telemedicine uh, is going to be available for everybody and that, you know, that there's these broad sweeping terms where um, it doesn't really change. If you hear the term telemedicine, it doesn't shift anything for physical therapists necessarily. So you have to do your due diligence when it comes to looking at the information about telemedicine and who that applies to, right? And so also when you look at um, your insurance policies and, and other types of documents, make sure that you're referring to telehealth or telerehab for physical therapy services. If you ask about telemedicine benefits, 
you will not be considered a provider for telemedicine. So make sure that you make those two distinctions. So telehealth again is we help uh, manage our patients through their own uh, their own illnesses through improved self-care and access to education, support systems, and treatment. Telerehab is more of our uh, specific uh, tele-term, if you will. So really it's about delivery of rehabilitation service over uh, communication networks and the internet. So you can do assessment and um, functional abilities in their environment and clinical therapy. So when you're looking at uh, benefits, you can also check to see if they have tele-rehab benefits. Tele-rehab benefits also shows up more in clinical research, right? Um, if you do research and look into the efficacy and effectiveness of digitally delivered care, tele-rehab will be a much more used, utilized term than telehealth for physical therapy specific. Um, telehealth, again, really accomplishes and encompasses all types of providers, dentists, counseling, um, disaster management, consumer, and professional education. So really telehealth is one of those terms that uh, is not a very good descriptor of exactly what we do, but during these times, it's the most accepted term of what we do. So out of all those things, just make sure that telemedicine, you understand that does not apply to us as physical therapists, uh, and to make sure that if you hear something about telemedicine, that you clarify that, and, and, or that you clarify that those rules uh, apply uh, or may or may not apply to us. Some other terms that are coming up, across the country are mode, uh, models of telehealth, right? So uh, some terms of delivery. Um, so right now, currently, the, the, what you're watching and how we're interacting would be a live video or synchronous technology. So this is a live two-way interaction between the person and the patient and the caregiver, um, or the patient, the caregiver, or provider using the audiovisual telecommunications technology. So this can be used for both diagnostic and treatment services. Um, and it's just like anything you've done on a video call with your family. So as long as you're live face-to-face -face, talking to the patient, you're good. Second term is asynchronous. You'll hear this term floated around. Asynchronous modes of communication are basically or otherwise known as store and forward. This is non-live communication, right? So this could be emails of HEPs. This could be a recorded video of exercises. Um, that you send the patient. This could be a recorded exercise where the patient demonstrates their exercises and sends it to you. It could be lab results. It could be any type of electronic communication that happens on non-live uh, synchronous video. So that's the important um, differentiator in those two modes of delivering telehealth. So those, in some states, these get specific. I, in Texas, I'll just give Texas, I'm here in Austin. In Texas, you can't initiate um, telehealth via asynchronous mode of delivery. You have to have a live synchronous session before you can actually utilize asynchronous care. So depending on the state that you're in, that may impact the mode and model of how you deliver telehealth. So please be mindful of these types of definitions. Um, also, there's remote patient monitoring is another term that's used. This is really about data, health data, that's collected from an individual at one location and delivered electronically at another. So when this comes to um, a lot of patients that have chronic diseases that they need to be monitored or something needs to be checked on them regularly, like weight for patients that have CHF, um, they have a digital scale, they can weigh themselves daily, and then that data is uploaded into a, the physician's portal or cloud, and then they're monitored on a daily basis remotely for any progression of weight gain that could be uh, a contraindication or a need to uh, necessitate a medicine change uh, due to CHF. 
Typically, right now, not a lot of physical therapists are in this space. Um, they may be monitoring some of those patients, but they're, uh, not too many PTs are actually delivering this model of care. Typically, this is a physician or hospital base. And then mobile health really depends on or is determined by apps and different mobile devices and, and things that appear uh, that can be very portable, including telehealth. So I would, I would umbrella tele-rehab and mHealth together because you can deliver it via PDA, cell phone, or tablet, right? So this is more just a, the, the more um, mobile you are as a provider. You could do telehealth with someone on the beach, um, and depending on your place of service code, you could deliver telehealth while you're on the beach. So um, just think about that as, as we talk about more app-based functions of some platforms that could be applicable to that. So some of the technology that's really out there um, that uh, will pretend, I'll briefly brush these just so you're aware of them, but know that right now in this time of the COVID-19 uh, crisis, some of these may not be the best thing to implement into your practice right now, but know that the virtual reality in tele-rehab is an extremely, uh, it's a very quickly developing technology where patients put on goggles and they can meet and go into augmented reality and meet their therapist in different spaces to perform exercises or to see exercises demonstrated. So it's a really cool technology. There's motion technology where patients can see themselves on the computer. And so they were, um, they were able to look through and see um, themselves moving or get the movement collected from their body and pushed into a system. So sensors and body, body monitoring have been, um, they're an interesting technology where you can actually wear a piece of clothing or have a, a different sensor that will sense your body positioning in space and alert you and change your posture. Haptic technology is really interesting to me. It's cloth and clothing that you can actually uh, generate sensations through distantly. So I could, a patient could have on a haptic cloth and then I could manipulate something a hundred miles away and they could feel the sensation on their skin. Um, so I know if anybody has a new car and they're, and they've, you know, kind of diverted out of their lane and their seat has vibrated on their butt. Think about that as haptic technology and how that could be utilized in physical therapy for tactile cueing and for input. AI, artificial intelligence, that will come into play when we look at um, larger type of um, systems and uh, startup companies that are leveraging AI in order to deliver uh, digital physical therapy. Um, PDAs, electronic medical records, wireless technology, mobile apps are all just different ways that um, people can connect and also get data and information that can be a really important uh, for medical monitoring, right? So I think we all noticed the explosion with the Apple Watch that started to take a heart rate and other sensors and other uh, vitals. And so that would be an idea of wireless technology. And, and then that would also tap into the Apple medical records. So it all kind of is encompassed in, uh, in, those, in that realm as well. So just terms that you should be aware of, not necessarily in the immediacy for the, the deployment of telehealth into your practice, but just to be aware of. So for your business, really to get down and dirty in telehealth, typically it takes some time to implement telehealth into a practice. So do due diligence. You need to come up with your business plan, your patient demographics, right? Some people will not want telehealth um, or they wouldn't choose telehealth at a given rate. But now with the current situation, many people are um, seeing this as a really viable option to, deliver, to get care delivered to them. But you also have to make sure and take into consideration general uh, cultural and generational issues and also there's a tremendous bias amongst long, low income 
patients because they don't have access to high uh, b- a broadband Wi-Fi, or they may not have a tablet to get care, or they may not have access to a safe space to exercise. So please take into consideration patient demographics and your ability to deliver care, um, because that may be impacted greatly depending on the patient population that you serve. So you also need to have relevant current healthcare delivery systems to how you deliver care. Um, if you, uh, you need to make sure it blends with your current type of care and the delivery method that you um, deliver to your patients. You need to have skills and responsibilities as a PT providing telehealth. I'll touch on this briefly. Ali's going to cover some of this is that you've got to have good video adequate etiquette. You have to make sure that you have, you know, appropriate lighting room to move and you need to be able to communicate nicely over video. Um, and so that's a different way. I know some of you have always, I've been on a tele on some type of teleconference when there's 48 people talking um, understanding the rules and kind of, a, of engagement by a telehealth is important to know as well. You also need HIPAA-compliant scripts for patient communication and the protection of PHI, right? If you're delivering care in a busy area where other people can hear you, you're transmitting their PHI. So making sure that you take precautions and steps in order to, um, and to protect your patients who you're treating digitally. And on the other end, patient needs to be protected as well. Um, and you also need to make sure you have appropriate policies and procedures in place um, for consent, for medical emergencies, what Lynn covered earlier to protect PHI. I know there's talk about people recording visits, right? Some payers I know in Texas are requiring recording visits to get paid for uh, telehealth. Um, and so that video becomes a part of the patient's PHI. So how are you going to store that? Who, where are you going to store it? How long? I mean, you store it for the normal five years, um, right? So making sure that you have all of your business practices and policies in place for procedures um, is really important. And then your IT development and installation. Um, every system is different. Right now, across the board, you could have a list of 100 different ways to deploy telehealth in your business. Um, just depends on how that model fits into your business and your patient flow and to your workflow. So right now, um, because of this uh, rapid adoption, there's a lot of trying to navigate and plug and play systems, which is pretty normal. Um, but it's even become more apparent uh, the the need for some centralized systems for delivering this digital care. So you need IT, that's my my second question. You need a strong IT department to make sure you have secure systems set up in place um, with your policies and procedures and protocol. Right, so your equipment, really you wanna make sure you're HIPAA compliant because as Lynn said earlier, there has been a a lowering of the shield of HIPAA during this COVID crisis. Um, I'm going to, to sit here and tell you that you should always choose a HIPAA compliant secure platform to deliver care if it's available. If it is not, then you may in that circumstance use a non-HIPAA compliant platform, which we'll talk about later, Uh, but you need to do your due diligence in documenting why you chose that and and you need to document the time, the approximate length of time that that patient's PHI could have been compromised and the patient needs to be able to consent to this non-HIPAA delivered care. Right, so I think that's an important part that a patient, like Lynn said about denial of, of uh, their consent, you need to inform the patient, hey, you know what, this isn't a secure platform, this is not a HIPAA compliant uh, encrypted platform, are you okay with continuing to go through with this? And they may or may not say yes. Right, so you need to make sure that your, um, your connectivity reliable, you need to have bandwidth, audio and video interface quality, you need to make sure that the staff can use and learn the equipment both easily and on-site and remotely when needed. So can this function when you can't get to the clinic, right? That's a great question. 
And is the system compatible with your current hardware or software? Most telehealth systems right now can integrate. It just takes time. There's a process. Typically, integration of a telehealth system, depending on how you deploy it, can take a couple of weeks and maybe two to three weeks, depending on branding and depending on how you want it to look. Um, and so the, the scope of how you can deploy it into your clinical practice, the time frames can vary anywhere from 12 hours, six hours to, to two to four weeks to six weeks, depending on the level of integration and the level of branding and the level of, uh, of system that you want to deploy in your practice. All right, so some simple, the beautiful thing about this is most systems operate with very simple hardware, right? So you have some Wi-Fi up and download speeds that need to be um, minim the minimum requirements. Uh, they need a laptop, microphone, or a headset. I prefer good old wired headphones, right? I know this seems antiquated, but most people are switching to battery-powered or rechargeable headphones, and they're, and they're lasting for an hour or two, and then they're dying. So if you're in the middle of a healthcare day, if you're treating and training and triaging patients, I highly recommend either having a couple of sets of rechargeable um, earbuds or headphones, or just go old school with cables and you don't have to worry about that at all, right? The mobility may be a little bit limited, but um, it depends on how you function in that telehealth visit that this may be restraining or not. It just depends on, and on how you're set up. But again, it's, uh, it's hard. It's very challenging once your headphones die to do a, 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 um, tele, a visit through just the speakers on your computer. The quality, just, it, it goes down pretty quickly. Um, and then you need to think about what you're surrounding yourself with. You need to create a neutral background. You need to have a quiet room. You need a room to move. As, as Allie will show you soon, that movement and room for both the therapist and the patient are super important because this isn't a normal this isn't a normal treatment in a, in a clinic where you have a table and you have a confined space and you do everything within that space, right? This is an opportunity where you have to help the patient move and show them. So Ali was going to be an amazing demonstrator of how you need to have the space both for the provider and the patient. And similar on the other side, the patient needs that Wi-Fi service or cell service in order to get those uploads and download speeds. And there's simple tools that you can send to your patient that they can check. Um, it's just a, you can, there's, probably 20 free links that they could just click a speed test and they can check the speed of their Wi-Fi. So that's an easy way to make sure patients have the capability. So there are other technology out there like VR and all these fancy systems, but look, what, what, when the rubber meets the road right now, we're trying to get everybody on and adopting telehealth as, as quickly as possible. And these are the bare requirements, the, the essentials that you need. So on practice models of telehealth, Actually, Alex, is this a good time to stop or is it for questions? Yeah, all right, well, let's pause. Well, you're muted though. There we go, yes, Mark, thank you. I've been madly typing away. So everyone, I'm trying to answer the questions that I can just to simplify things. And if they're, if they're questions that I think the whole group has to hear, I'm trying to save them. So we've been doing a little bit of both, but Mark, you've got some really good questions. Um, uh, and Lynn, these would, yeah, either one of you. If a patient has um, authorized visits, do the telehealth visits count towards those authorized visits? So if they've been given six authorized visits with tele and they have a telehealth visit, would that be one of them? I, I guess if you're authorizing the visits and you're authorizing telehealth, um, and, and that is one of the visits, telehealth itself, yes. Um, if you're doing e-visits or the uh, 
assessment and management calls, those are not counted. And so I think it depends. It's payer going to be payer specific. Mark, I don't know if you have any anything else, but to me, a telehealth visit is a visit. It's truly therapy. It just doesn't have to be. It doesn't happen to be physically present. So I would say it would count. Um, but in the case of the e-visits, we've been told they do not count either toward the therapy threshold or toward um, the visit count. Yeah. And if the insurance isn't paying for the visit at all, so let's say you had two in-clinic visits and one telehealth visit, if the patient pays cash for the telehealth visit, then that would not count towards their authorized visits because the insurance company isn't counting it. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. Right. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And if you needed authorization for an in, an in-clinic visit, you would need authorization for a telehealth visit if it's going to be paid for, unless your insurance company waives that. So you really have to ask every single one of your payers what their policies are around this. All that's right. amazing. Just, yeah. just the language that you said just there is confusing enough for many people to navigate. To. Yeah. So do you want to say that better, Mark, to explain it better? No, no, that was part. No, I'm just saying it was perfectly explained, yet it's still so confusing. No. Yeah. yeah. Um, somebody want a clarification? Uh, the seven, they felt like the seven days after the last in-clinic visit, um, they thought the seven days started after the patient reaches out requesting the phone call. No, it's actually, there has to be a separation of seven days from the last, at least seven days from the last time you saw the patient to build the assessment and management code. And then you can't physically see the patient for another 24 hours. And so I think what they're trying to do is say, hey, you know, this clinical decision-making probably isn't needed right away. I don't know if I agree with that. But if you're going to see them anyway, they probably didn't need this call. I'm not saying I agree, but I'm just saying that's my interpretation. Mark, do you know anything else? And, and I think just to clarify one more time, Lynn, I think there's a misunderstanding when it's an assessment management versus oh. an e-visit. Okay, so the e-visit does not have that same restriction. It's assessment and management that has that restriction. Thank you. So could so, you clarify when e-visits can be seen? It has to be more than seven days after the patient was last seen, and right. they have to be an on. They have to have an open case. They have to be an established patient, patient. on a right. chronic care. Right. Right. But it can be ten days later, fourteen days later, right. throughout the COVID process, actually. And I've not seen anything that says you can't see them within twenty-four hours after that. I've not seen that. So, if you guys have, speak up. Yeah. Um, does the patient have to be in the same state at the time of the e-visit? This is super important, Mark. Yeah, so licensure compact uh, rules and state licensure com uh, licensures rule here. You must have a license in the state that the patient resides in to deliver care for that patient or have practiced reciprocity through the licensure compact to provide care to that patient. Um, there has been floating... Uh, rumors around this country that our license, uh, we now have national scope of practice and that we, our limits of state have been dissolved by some magical powers, but that I can tell you that that has not occurred um, and that we still have to maintain state boundaries for our licensure on a state level. So the location of where the patient is, you have to have a license in that or practice reciprocity in that state. Thanks. And then Mark, um, we are only... This person wants to know if they can 
only see current patients for telehealth versus can they see new ones? And again, the answer is different if it's Medicare or commercial payers. Do you want to explain that? Yeah, of course. So for Medicare, they've established that it has to be an established patient uh, for an e-visit. So for initiation of an evaluation, it's going to be state level. <laughs> if you have any regs and rules for your state that, that doesn't allow you to do that, I've not heard of that yet. In fact, some policies in this country are just paying for the evaluation only via telehealth, which makes no sense. Um, but you can, for cash-based patients, you can do a, a, a treatment and, and uh, evaluations and treatment based on your state rules and regs. Um, and so same thing for commercial, based on your state rules and regs, you can perform an evaluation and treatments. So we have to default to your um, practice act in order to make sure you can do those. But um, are you guys aware of any states that don't allow, uh, well, there are a couple of states that have been questionable, right? Arizona just came through this morning saying that they have telehealth abilities to practice that. Um, but I'm trying to think off the top of my head if any state doesn't allow telehealth for physical therapists. I, I, my brain is a little mush right now. Allow? Yeah, Arizona, but they just changed it. That's when you said Yeah, they that. just changed today. That, just yeah. allowed it. Um, but I couldn't tell you which ones still maybe don't. So defer to your state rules and regs. If you can participate as a provider and provide telehealth services, then that shouldn't limit you as to whether or not you can avow or treat, but it may. It may. Okay. Um, typing one more answer here. Uh, someone asked if they could... With a Medicare patient, just skip over the whole e-visit process and do a telehealth visit. And the easy answer is yes. You don't have to do e-visits just because they have Medicare in favor of the telehealth visit. They have to pay cash for that telehealth visit, though. Cash, right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, sorry, I'll answer some of these at the end. Okay. I think, why don't you go ahead and keep going, Mark? Let me yeah. collect these again. Awesome. Sure. Thank you. Those are all great questions. And those questions, great again, questions. the beautiful thing about the ambiguity of this presentation is that all answers will not be valid within the time that they've left my mouth. Okay. So you can't, or Allie's mouth or Lynn's mouth. So mm -hmm. things are changing on a extremely rapid pace. Um, and so please be mindful and please be uh, considerate or consider that these answers may not be applicable tomorrow, depending on the circumstance. So current practices, in telehealth, really, you could, I like to break these down into three kind of buckets, right? Companies that provide a service for you as a business owner to connect with their patients and provide care. There's companies that have licensed providers that actually deliver care. And then there's companies that use technology and sometimes a human combination to deliver care, right? So this bot, so the bot, the top one is what I want to focus on with all the PPS owners, because that's, that is who you want to connect with in order to provide your patients with care. Okay, the other two, I would consider these to be in competition, right? So video platforms or platforms out there that allow you to sign up either a monthly or subscription, some are free, and you can use their services in order to deliver care through your staff to your patients. That's the important key here. Again, I'm the founder of anywhere.healthcare. Uh, we're a HIPAA compliant platform that allows schedule and messaging um, with a connection uh, of video. Um, it, we're relatively inexpensive for now. We have it as $10 a month for three months to get everybody onboarded as fast as possible. Our normal price is $25 per provider per month. Zoom is a free, ver there's a free version that's not HIPAA compliant. 
Um, but HIPAA compliant for Zoom for four providers is $200 or five providers is $200 a month. So $40 per provider per month. CoView has a free um, system. DoxyMe has a free system. Um, but these are just basic. You're, you typically pay for bells and whistles in these systems, right? So Doxy.me will offer you a room-based system where you just send a link to the patient, the patient meets in the room, and, you're, and that's what you do. There's no uh, messaging and there's no other type of communication or ability to, for the patient to sign on. Um, I think that, you know, it's unique that I said platforms in here, but not all of these are actual platforms by definition of the secure platform for Medicare. So back to Lynn's point earlier, I think there needs to be distinction that some of these, like Zoom and Doxy um, and Skype, uh, they do not have portals, secure portals that patients have to sign into to, to qualify as e-visit communication. Anywhere Healthcare does, and I believe Clocktree has a patient uh, sign in as well. Um, and so you need to be, when you look at these platforms, take into consideration the patient population that you're treating. Um, so when it comes to, we'll get to the HIPAA compliance in just a little bit. Um, we know right now due to the lax, uh, laxity of HIPAA rules and regs that you can use things like FaceTime or Google Chat or um, Skype or Apple, uh, what else, FaceTime, there's Google, uh, there's WhatsApp, there's lots of different communication platforms on your phone. Right now they're advising that at this time that you can use those as long as you document well, um, but choose a platform that's secure if possible, all right? So telehealth platforms and systems and EHRs, also Anywhere Healthcare, Cario, BlueJay, InHand Health, MedBridge now has a, has a telehealth option, Practice Perfect EMR has a telehealth option, PT Everywhere is an EMR with a telehealth option. So these are gonna be a little bit more in depth in how they engage you and your system and your clients. So um, some of these, I know InHand Health has a, a complete uh, patient management or CRM, a customer relations management system. Um, you know, PT everywhere is an entire EHR. So some of these systems may not be right for your practice right now because of the integration needed. At this point, not very many people want to go through an EHR integration or transfer during the middle of, uh, of a healthcare crisis. So these are all um, opportunities as you look into the future for kind of systems-wide platform setups that you can take into consideration for your company. Companies like eHealth, eWellness Health, Physio, Physera, Reflection Health, Theranow, these companies are companies where a patient can click on this website and be connected with a therapist by their company. So this would be, in my consideration, the competition to private practitioners across the country, right? So these are, these are companies that are providing um, telehealth for, for PT specifically. And others in the game, such as Hinge Health, Simple Therapy, Kaya Health, and Keo, are all app-based that solicit direct to patients. So you can search um, Simple Therapy or Kaya Health and they are an app base where a patient will pay a small monthly fee in order to get web delivered um, uh, avatar directed exercises or exercise videos. Um, and I bring this to mind because these four companies, this is a huge exploding space in musculoskeletal care because these are contracting with major employers to be their provider of musculoskeletal care or their first line in musculoskeletal prevention. So as private practice owners, we need to be really aware of, this, of these companies in the space because just last year alone, those four companies had $165 million in capital investment, right? They had a, a, a massive amount of, of funding that were pushing at these because they're scalable and uh, because they have infinite amount of users because they're AI driven 
and you can deploy them rapidly to, to huge audiences. So um, really be mindful in how you communicate about the services that we offer and the importance of what we do um, because there's people out there and there's companies out there that are trying to eliminate the physical presence of physical therapy uh, across this country. Um, so knowing the rules is really important, right? The biggest important thing that you can know as a PT providing telehealth is that you can treat, you have to treat the patient person the same way as if in the clinic. This is paramount. So you have to have consent form signed. You have to have consent to treat. You have to have all your, uh, your dots, dot, eyes, eyes dotted and T's crossed. Um, when you're treating patients to make sure that you treat them just like they're in person. This, just because you do a digital cash-based visit doesn't mean you don't have to document. And I say that only because people have asked me that, right? This is a real patient. You have to treat it as a real patient, as a real visit. So please be, um, be a consummate professional in how you manage patient care. <clears throat> Knowing the licensure compact is also super important. The patient, what I deferred to earlier, the patient, you must have a license or practice reciprocity in the state that the patient resides in. Um, there have been talk about, well, what if somebody goes on vacation? What if somebody goes on or their summer home? Um, that, that is a very gray area that hasn't been well-defined to my knowledge. Um, has, has, have either of you heard of anyone defining them being out of their compact state for a defined period of time? I have not. So you're talking about the patient or the, or the therapist? Right. Let's say my patient in, uh, I have compact reciprocity in Missouri. Let's say my patient in Missouri goes to Indiana for four weeks. Can I now treat them while they're in Indiana? Because they're not in a state that I have a license or compact or reciprocity. In. No it, one's no, answered it, that. It really is. It's my understanding that it's the location of the patient at the time of the encounter. Right. Um, we've had lots of questions on this behind the scenes as well. Like what if my patient is their residence is in one state and I'm doing telehealth in another, um, if they were to come to me, I'd be covered, but it, it, then they would be in your state. Right. So in the case of telehealth, it's my understanding that if you are licensed in the state, whether through your primary license or contact license, um, that the patient is in at the time of the encounter, then it's covered. If not, it's not covered. Okay. Allie, yep. Do you know any different? I, I've just, there's been people argue like, hey, what if my patient goes skiing in, in a state that doesn't cover in Nevada and they hurt their knee, right? And they're gone for a week. Can I still consult them while they're gone for a week? Technically, since they're not, you know, they're not a resident, they're not living there. So those questions are extremely gray right now. So I would default back to the current rules and regs that say that the patient has to be in the state that uh, you have license to practice in. Yeah, I think people want them to be gray because it sounds like they're only gone for a week, but that right. doesn't, that only gone for a week doesn't become law. So yeah. unless we're specifically told that is true, I would not do that. Right. And why should you care? One, you could, it could be damaging to your license. Two, you can, you can really do a lot of targeted marketing across those areas, right? So you can now reach people across um, the country. HIPAA, a fun topic. That's the old definition of HIPAA that we need to maintain or the telehealth provision. We need to maintain it. But really current language um, means that we, they're going to, they're not going to impose penalties for non-compliance. Um, and so under this notice, Apple FaceTime, Messenger, video chat, Google Hangout, Skype um, can be used uh, to provide um, without risk that they will be imposed penalty on. Um, however, you need to notify those patients 
that these third-party applications are potentially introduced risk and that you need to get an okay to use them. Again, this is temporary. Most of the information that we're talking about with insurances and compliance and everything are all temporary orders. So make sure that you're understanding that it's of the essence that you maintain as much as you can. Because um, HIPAA costs a lot of money. All right, so why should we care? It works. Um, customers want it. I'll go through these pretty rapidly because right now, customer-driven uh, decision-making is, is, is not as, I, I don't think, is, is relevant. But after the fact that we need to come back to this when this is over, this is relevant. Customers want this. Customers um, by age group want to try uh, telehealth across all demographics. Um, and so just make sure that you understand that before um, we had this crisis, many people would love for their care to be delivered digitally. Um, and so across, there's different reasons that they have time savings, faster service, cost savings, better access to professionals. However, there were some perceived barriers as a person, in-person care was a preference. There's privacy concerns, uncertainty about reimbursement, tech, and then how to use it. All of these things can be alleviated during these current times with communication and helping your patient understand the technology that you're using, right? But why should we really care as a profession? Because it works, right? There's been a lot of studies that look at the efficacy of or effectiveness of telehealth and telerehab. Specifically, there's been over 50 studies that are, and more are coming out that telerehab is a benefit or is, is no less than effective as in-person care. All right, there's one major study with Veritas from Duke uh, that they looked at 300 ortho patients that had total knee replacements. Half of them went to inpatient, or half of them went to outpatient orthopedic and uh, clinics. The other half went to home with an app to get exercises. And there was no difference in long-term outcome. Um, our total cost in three months after discharge, and they saved almost $2,800 per patient. So um, there are studies that are coming out in post-stroke, MSK, pulmonary rehab, cardiac rehab, joint replacements, low back pain that have all demonstrated that digitally delivered care, whether that be in-person or some apps, uh, can be just as effective as in-person care. So knowing that um, those are the cases that we actually can make an impact digitally, uh, it's an incredible opportunity for us as a profession, right? But I think we also need to step into the space and own our profession because others recognize the viability and the validity of how we use technology to treat musculoskeletal conditions, and they're stepping into the space too in a hurry. So. Um, it's just the beginning, and now I'm going to turn it over to Allie, who's going to, uh, you know, my back hurts, Allie. Can you help me? No. <laughs> Absolutely, Mark. <laughs> yes, I can. I'm going to screen you via telehealth before I let you come into my office. Um, so, Carrie, I think you're going to try to give me the full screen, Mark, when the, uh, those are off. Mark is full screen. Hi. So, there we go. All right, so you guys, I asked him to put me on full screen. I don't have slides because I really want to um, talk to you in a way that you are going to be talking to your patient when you do a telehealth visit. So um, I had been thinking about doing telehealth for a couple years, and that's a whole other story why I didn't get off the dime and do it. But when the COVID pandemic struck and it hit really in the Seattle area first, in fact, the um, nursing home facility that was the epicenter of the outbreak is just up the road from my office. I knew that um, we needed to get going and get telehealth in place. And although it feels like that was a year ago, it was really about 10 days ago. And we've done it. We've gone from zero to providing telehealth in 10 days or less, actually. Actually, we did it in six days. Um, 
So the thought process that I went through was um, shoot first, aim later, and looked at, gosh, let's just go with a free platform. Let's just get going and do this. And the very first platform that I signed up for and looked at, um, I realized that telehealth was something that we want to be offering as a long game, not just a short game. And I wanted it to be more robust. And then I would be paying for a platform regardless. So I looked a little deeper and decided that I, um, the two things that were most important to me was HIPAA compliance, because I didn't want to change platforms because I'm not compliant now and I'm going to be compliant. And the second issue was really having access to someone who could walk me through the process. I didn't want a platform where I had to figure all of it out. I wanted someone who could tell me, I'm not a techie person, so tell me what equipment do I need? How do I, how do I set it up? What does the patient need? And so, um, this is not a PPS endorsement. This is an Allie Juice endorsement. I did use, um, I am using Anywhere Healthcare with Mark, and he has walked us through the process. So, you know, right away we were able to get, um, I got all my therapists signed up before I even knew what I was doing, got all our therapists signed up and asked them to go in, register, and start using the platform, um, have visits with coworkers, have visits with friends and family and just practice and get comfortable and make sure that they were able to do it at the office. Where did we want to do it? We ended up choosing my office as the best place. This is my home, not my in-clinic office. Um, and then I asked everyone to look into their, in their homes and make sure that they had the appropriate technology and the appropriate space to do it at home as well. While they were doing all of that, we were working on the other side to make sure that we had the um, patient invitation letter or patient welcome letter, that we had a letter that described the patients what they needed to do on their end and have available, and then the consent form, which was all um, within the platform, which is all online in the portal. And then I had my, you know, diving in like I do, I had my front desk start calling the patients who had been canceling their appointments to see if they wanted to take a telehealth option. And lo and behold, not very many of them did. So realized, I think we need a transcript for how we talk to patients about telehealth, not only to let the patient understand the value of telehealth, but to make sure my staff understood the value of telehealth. And it made it pretty clear that people don't really understand how can you do physical therapy through a computer? You have to be able to touch me, right? I mean, you touch me all the time when I'm in, when I'm in the clinic. And it's very true. We do touch our patients, and that's a very important part of what we do. But I think the majority of what we do is education and exercise, and that can be done very effectively across this platform. You have to make sure that your therapists and your patients understand that. So the next thing we did after a script uh, that everyone would use is I created a video and put it on our Facebook page that is too long, but go ahead and go to my Facebook page and look at it so you can get ideas on what you want to do and don't want to do. Um, but we did it for two reasons. One was to explain what we're doing during the COVID, price, the COVID uh, crisis, how we're altering, how we see our patients, and then explaining the telehealth option to them. And then I walked through with them what an actual visit looks like. And um, so that they're looking at their computer while I'm talking to them and said, you know, we're going to ask you the same questions that we're going to ask you when you come in for a visit. I want to know what your history is. I want to know any special tests you've had done. I want to know what, what makes you worse and better. And then really critically, I want to ask you about red flags, meaning things that are important for me to know to make sure that you are appropriate for me to treat, to safely treat across the telehealth platform. So that if there is something amiss, 
I can handle that by referring you on to another healthcare provider, asking more questions. And again, in this crisis, um, maybe doing a phone consult with another provider to make sure that we get you the appropriate care if telehealth is not that. So you do need to make sure that your providers are asking the same red flag questions that they should be asking when the patient is in the clinic. So it's not really different. It's just enhanced importance um, for me. So uh, the next thing we did then is have the physical therapists. Oh, let me back up a little bit. I do want to explain to you the other important thing about when you're on this call and what I did on my video was demonstrated for patients what that visit after those questions would physically look like. So if I'm seeing my shoulder is always easy to explain here, if I'm seeing a patient who has shoulder pathology, I want to make sure that I have enough room and they have enough room for me to move around and show them what I want them to do. I can't just say, well, you know, flex your arms to 90 degrees or do X, Y, Z because I can't touch them or cue them as easily, I need to be able to show them. So I'm gonna ask them to raise their arms up over their head. If I decide, you know, I can't really see what you're doing, I want you to push your chair away and stand up for me. Now, go ahead and do this for me. So move your arms, great. Now, can you reach behind your back? Show me what that looks like. Let's go sideways. And oh, that's looking kind of funny right there. I think Ellie has a rotator cuff problem. And, you know, go through all their motions. Then I might say, well, can you resist yourself? So push down against your arm while you're trying to raise it. Does that hurt? Can you do that? Don't use right or left because that's backwards in a screen now. It's even worse than we're in the clinic. So say, raise your involved arm or injured arm or however you want to do that. You know, resist that. Maybe bend your elbow and push down against your arm while you try to touch your shoulder. Just the same kind of cues, but show them what it is that you want them to do. Uh, if it's you know, their back, their knee, you're going, well, I can only see part of you. Guess what? My screen moves and you are allowed to move during your telehealth visit. So you can tell your patient, I want you to move your screen down so I can see your feet. I want to be able to see you, you know, do a little squat for me. Go ahead and hang on to the wall if you need to. Use the desk. So you're going to use the things that are around you. Turn sideways and then forward so I can see what, you know, your back looks like. You have the ability to have your patient do quite a few things. You can even, you know, you're looking at their shoulder. Let's just screen your neck out a little bit. Tilt backwards. Do you have any pain going into either arm? You know, so you can do quite a bit. Um, and your history should have cleared out a lot of your red flags and let you know if you're concerned about something more serious that you can't evaluate across the screen. So once you've done all that, both the therapist and the patient a much better idea that, oh, I guess you can do this visit with me. And then you might want to ask your patient to have some things handy for you to be able to show them what you think they're going to be able to do, whether it's stretching bands or foam rollers or some lightweights, or even teach them how to make some lightweights at home so they have something to lift when you get to that point. Um, and then the final thing, two final things, I had our patient, our therapist call all of their current patients or who were current prior to the COVID crisis, call all of them, check in on them, ask them how they're doing, is there anything that they need from us, and then explain our telehealth and e-visit options to them, let them know that they can go to the Facebook page to look at the video to understand it a little bit better, and then just that personal touch, and then we are next uh, emailing all of our patients through our patient engagement uh, platform, to let them know, again, that we have altered our in-office visits due to the COVID crisis and our stay-in-place mandate by the governor, we will still be seeing extremely essential critical patients in the office. 
but um, our largest mechanism for reaching out to them and monitoring them and help them rehab during this time is through telehealth. Um, so, and I think that's really critical so that when they think they don't need you today, maybe in a week or two, they realize, wow, I really do need to talk to my physical therapist. What did she say about how I could get a hold of her? And they'll go back to that email and find that information and reach out to you, especially if your office is closed, make sure that they know how to contact you so they can do that telehealth visit. And on many of these um, platforms, there's a mechanism for the patient. They can use the platform to reach out to the physical therapist. And uh, that's how we did it. So like I said, six days, we did our first visit from when we said go. So there you go. Mark, back to you and, and Lynn, and let's answer some more questions. Yeah, That I was great. That was awesome. Really <laughs> yeah, it was. I think the important thing that all providers need to understand is there's a learning curve here, right? There's a steep learning curve, and you really have to, uh, you have to practice it. Like Ali said, you had everybody practice before this, and also you need to be I'd like to term it humble and open with your patients and understanding that, look, this is new for everybody. This isn't how we've done things for years. And now it's time we do something differently. So if you are, if you are, um, if you're with your patient, uh, when I started doing this, I'd be like, you know what, John, this is the first time I've seen somebody with knee pain on a virtual visit. Let's figure it out together. Right. And, and work through it. And, and it also gives you opportunity to see where your patients live and the equipment they have. I know Ali said, that um, you can, they can have equipment, but you know what? A can of beans, some cans weigh 16 ounces. That's a pound, right? And they, most people have a belt. And so a belt becomes a great nerve glide or a, a stretch strap to do nerve glides with. And, you know, you just have to get really creative and be a ninja when it comes to a telehealth visit. It's, it's, it, for me, it's really exciting for problem solving because you, you're really just a giant problem solver. So thank you, Ali. That was amazing. Um, Ellie, we had a lot of questions. I wonder if I could take a minute and ask some questions that were specific. Yep. So um, one of them was, um, can you talk a little bit about your patient demographics? Um, you know, I think my patient demographics are pretty typical outpatient ortho. Um, I, we have about 20% Medicare, 22 maybe. Uh, it's going to range a little bit, but we see everything from junior high age athletes, kids, uh, through that Medicare population. I would say we have a fairly, our geriatric population is fairly active, but about 5% of them are pretty geriatric. What about socioeconomic wise? Um, socioeconomic, I mean, I haven't value for you guys, I'm like tech land. So socioeconomically, we, I live in a high wealth area, but we also have one of the biggest immigrant populations in the United States. So there's a mix. We do have a, a, a mix of lower socioeconomic status, but I'd say probably obviously higher than in much of the country. Yeah. There are also some questions just about the name of your practice and your Facebook and website. So maybe after um, you could take a minute to type it in. Yeah. And it, I, um, think, I think Carrie, that's on the resource link. If not, I'll make sure it's on the resource link. Yeah. Okay. And then there was a question, a specific question. I don't know if you or Mark could take it about vestibular patients. Give an example of how you might uh, treat a vestibular patient on telehealth. So um, that is, in, that's a great question, by the way. That is one of the people that I think is essential. 
And so we have seven treating therapists. We will probably have one therapist in the office or going to the office as needed. I would say a really acute vestibular patient probably needs an in-office visit so you could make sure that they're not having a stroke or that, you know, why are they, what's the problem? However, let's just say it's someone you've seen before that has a recurrent problem or those of you who are vestibular therapists, I'm not, but we do have them in my office, so I don't want to misspeak here. But let's say you can do it on telehealth. I know my therapist can can demo an epley maneuver. She can actually have a plinth and have her computer screen set up. She's done it for me and demo how to do an epley maneuver for the patient. So it is possible if that was your only choice. You have to think about what's best for the patient. And if the patient can't access anybody and they're scared to go to the emergency room and your office isn't open, you showing them how to do an epley maneuver is better than what they're getting otherwise. So there's my answer. That sounds good. Mark, there is a question that came in that I think would be perfect, um, or two questions for you. And sure. one is that um, they indicated one obstacle I've been running into is getting the medical history and the body chart filled out online. Do you have any advice on resources for getting paperwork converted to digital or interactive versions? Oh, yeah. So that's great a great question. question. Yeah. That is a great question. So there's actually a couple of uh, companies that do intake, digital intakes. Um, one, I think it's called Intake Q. Um, is an actual company that you sign up for their services and they do digital uh, forms. Um, but there's also, I have, when I first started my practice, I just, I'm not that, even though I'm in tech, I don't do a lot of tech. So I don't know how to convert PDF. So I just had, I went to Fiverr.com and had somebody do fillable forms for all of my forms. So a fillable PDF form, you just email that to the patient and they can fill it out on their computer and sign it and then just save it and email it back to you. So that's been the easiest way that I've found to do a digital intake is just have your forms be PDF and, and fillable. Um, you know, in, in, in these times, like I've also emailed patients and had them fill it out at home and then hold, the, hold it up to their uh, camera. And then I've taken pictures of that and then reviewed it. That's another way to do it. Um, and then knowing that I'm gonna see a patient in person, I'll often, you could have them fill out uh, some of the forms and have them take pictures and send it to you over a secure method or email it to you for their phone so pictures can work. Um, so you have to get creative uh, in that space for sure. Uh, but fillable PDF forms have been by far the easiest. I have my entire intake paperwork as a fillable PDF form. Okay, that sounds good. There's a question about documentation of the sessions, and I guess the biggest thing I would say is document like you're doing an in-person. Just go ahead and document that they gave consent, your location, their location in the platform. Um, I guess the other thing is, um, the other question I thought would be good to answer live is, how long are the sessions usually if it's telehealth? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, I, they span, and, I, and Allie can also respond to this uh, with her clinicians. So a, an initial eval can be anywhere from 30 to 70 minutes. It really depends on the patient. It depends on their condition. It depends on their comfort, the technology, their setup. Um, but follow-ups are typically in the 20-minute range, 20 to 25 minutes. They're not very long um, because you just get it done. You're not entertaining uh, and asking about cats and seeing how their life is. You're really just getting in there and getting it done. Uh, for those cash-based practitioners out there who want to charge patients cash, I would take your hourly rate and divide it by four, and I would just bill in 15-minute increments. 
right? Just give the patients manageable, ch manageable chunks of time that they can pay for and not have to think they have to see you for an hour for a PT visit. And uh, so it makes it, I think, affordable and approachable for some patients. And you can still charge your same hourly rate. It's just broken down in chunks because some people don't need a lot of time. They may just need to review the hip hike and clamshell and, and sideline abduction exercises that you gave them. That'll take 10 to 15 minutes. Um, but so do it that way. From my experience, evals anywhere from 30 to 70, and then follow-ups are pretty, pretty much 15 to 25, somewhere there. You, Allie? Yeah, Mark, that's, a, that's what we're doing. We're doing initial vows for an hour because we want to make sure that if you're going to do this across, um, again, a video platform, that you really have enough time to ask all the important questions and all that. But the return visits have, so far, 30 minutes have been adequate for us. Again, I no. think you tend to be a little bit more efficient. Some that chit-chat doesn't happen. Um, so I think you might even be a little bit more efficient. I'm a chit-chatter myself um, with my patients. And uh, yeah, so I think the 30 and 60 is good. And I, there was a question about how we're getting reimbursed for these visits. We've been doing them for less than a week, well, a week. So I have no idea in terms of if insurance is going to pay us. We have done our due diligence to the best of our ability as to who might pay us, and we will bill those insurers. We're doing a cash rate when we know it's not covered and we reduced, we made the choice. Everyone has to do this for themselves. I think there's pros and cons. We reduced our rate mainly because so many people are going to be out of work right now and we don't yeah. tell how it's new to my clinic. So we reduced our rates. We didn't make them free, but we reduced our rates to encourage people uh, to utilize the service. Mark, yeah. there was one other question. I know we have to tie things up, but do you find that you're, your telehealth clients over time, not just for this COVID crisis, but that they offer, may offer a brief first free visit or a sample visit as a way of helping people understand what to expect. Right, so I think all, all the business owners on this call need to think about how they're going to integrate digital care into their practice when this is over, right? And so one of the ways that I've seen to be very effective is to offer a button on your screen that just says contact for, would you like a free video consult? Right, just do a free consult, just like you would in a free screen in your clinic, um, and that helps them both get comfortable with it, expect it, and also um, there's been some good some good data that we've gathered that people that do that telehealth video visit and then show up into your clinic have more have a higher rate of completed plans of care than if as if they do the, just a, a walk-in free visit. So um, just because of the dynamics of the end of it, where you, they have to sign up for care and it's awkward. So. Uh, if, if a patient does a video visit and they show up, you know they're invested, right? They get to meet you face-to-face -face before, and so they're more likely to stay. So I think that uh, when this is all said and done, finding ways to integrate you, this tele telehealth into your clinical practice and how it makes the most sense will be necessary. And, but yes, there's, I mean, you can give away care to anybody on this planet. It's legal to give care to Medicare beneficiaries. You can donate care. So um, you can, uh, you would, a free screen or a free telehealth touch or a free visit is a perfectly appropriate way to, to help introduce people to digital care. I know we're out of time. How do you guys want to tie this up? So if I can intervene, Lynn, I guess, I think, thank you, Mark and Lynn, you guys just did a great job and everyone, they really have worked very hard. You have no idea how fast these guys are turning around this information for you. Um, so thank you very much. I'm going to put a plug in for your PPS and APT boards. They are working their tails off to get people as current information as they can around 
rules and regulations and billing and telehealth um, and managing your practices. So, and we're gonna keep doing it. The PPS website is open to the public. We've uh, taken the firewall down for uh, all information about COVID. So please use it, even if you're not a member. Um, Lynn and Mark and I and will meet after this to decide if based on what happened today, we should do a follow-up webinar. So if that's of interest to you, um, type something in real quick. Um, and then just use the website if you have more information or you know reach out to one of us. Anything else that Mark, you or Lynn would like to add? Dive in, just dive in and do it. Yeah. Yep, just dive in, just do it. Um, be kind to one another and understand that this is uh, working together. We can become a better profession because of it. So that's my final word. Yeah, bless you all for doing what you do. Yeah. And Allie, thanks so much for serving us on the board. Yeah. Yep, thank you, Allie. All right, thanks everybody. All right, thank you all for attending today. Um, as, they, as we've noted, this will be recorded and posted on our website along with a copy of the slide presentations. And all of the links that we've referred to are in the slide presentation. And most of those links are to resources that are directly on the PPS website on our COVID-19 page. So if you haven't already, please take the time to explore that page. Uh, Allie and Mark and Lynn, thank you so much for your time today. And I'll wish everyone a great evening. Thank you for listening. And please subscribe to the podcast at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media.